0: Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello everyone, I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, in complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer Review is Connell Doyle. Connell and I know each other for a very long time being law school classmates. Connell is an incredibly talented trial lawyer. He's one of the few attorneys in history to argue before the United States Supreme Court and obtain multiple seven and eight-figure jury verdicts. Connell is the founding partner of the Los Angeles-based law firm Doyle Law. His practice focuses on litigating complex cases involving serious injuries and death with a focus on the representation of amputees. Uh, And he's got a pretty impressive uh, CV and I'm gonna read a little bit to you so you've got a good background on him. He's an award-winning trial lawyer who has received national recognition for his courtroom victories that have had broad reaching impact on society. His international human rights victory in Castaneda versus United States was a catalyst for the reform of the United States immigration healthcare system and garnered widespread acclaim from his peers, legal publications, and the international media. For example, he received the 2012 California Lawyer of the Year Award in Human Rights and the 2011 Trial Lawyer of the Year Award from Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles He's been listed in both Best Lawyers in America and Super Lawyers for the past consecutive years, and his courtroom victories have been chronicled in newspapers around the world, including a piece on the CBS News magazine 60 Minutes. Connell's reputation as one of the finest trial attorneys in America was further cemented with two stunning back-to-back verdicts in Kern County, California, one of California's most conservative jurisdictions In December 2013, Connell obtained as lead trial counsel a $26.8 million medical malpractice jury verdict in McKnight versus Spain. This result was the largest medical malpractice verdict in county history and was recognized by the Daily Journal as a top 10 verdict in California for 2013. The National Law Journal recognized the verdict as a top 100 verdict nationally and the Consumer Attorneys Association of California named him a finalist for the 2014 Consumer Attorney of the Year Award. The highest pretrial offer by the defense was a meager $300,000. In March of 2014, Connell obtained as lead trial counsel a $3.8 million jury verdict in Doe versus Jack in the box. In this premises liability case, the highest pretrial offer was $200,000. The foundation of this success is a passion for justice and a commitment to client services. His firm principles really stuck out to me. Care, results, and creative legal approaches, which sort of parallel synergies values. Connell graduated from Eckerd College in 1993 and thereafter obtained his Juris Doctorate degree from Florida State University College of Law in 1997. Go Knowles. Connell, welcome to Trial Review. Very nice to have you on today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Jason. It's a real pleasure to be here with you uh, and, a, and a real honor. Before getting into all the lost stuff, I, I know you and I both share a passion for skiing. What do you love about being on top of a mountain and uh, hurtling down on uh, on two skis? Um, well, it's, for me, it's only one ski. Uh, I was born
1: without my right leg and I've been skiing on, on, uh, on one ski for 40, I don't know, 42, 43 years. Uh, I'm a former competitive, uh, ski racer. Um, for, for me, it's different, you know, I, I so p- partly when I ski, I'm on these outriggers where they're kind of like crutches and I've got my prosthetic leg off and I'm kind of hobbling around like the, the lodges and trying to get out on the mountain. It's kind of, it's kind of difficult for me and I need to get help from people. So it sort of kind of puts me in a place where I can kind of relate to my clients cause I'm sort of, I'm really disabled cause I've got to have my prosthetic leg off to ski, but. Then when I get up on the mountain, it's a kind of a great equalizer for me because, um, you know, my racing background and the fact that I've been skiing so long, you know, I can ski with almost anybody. and I can ski almost any terrain. And so I really love getting out there because it sort of makes me feel alive and uh, makes me feel like, you know, I'm you know, no different than anyone else and it's, it's just an amazing feeling. What is your favorite place that you've skied? Um, you know, I ski all over. I've got a place in, in Utah at, at Deer Valley. So Deer Valley, Utah is my home mountain. I've skied over 100 days at the old Squaw Valley. They just renamed it Palisades up in Lake Tahoe. Just skied Jackson Hole this past weekend, one of my favorite mountains. And I'm, I'll am i be skiing Alaska for the Western Tri-Lawyers Convention coming up here uh, in about a month. I'm really excited about that. I've never skied Alaska. It's supposed to be very, very challenging, very challenging terrain, which is which is awesome. I'm looking forward to the challenge.
0: Yeah, I had seen that. I, I just got back from uh, Florida Justice Association Ski Seminar and got to ski snowmass, which is like one of my favorite places to ski. So I I really, uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to go out there, but uh, had, a, uh, had a moment, which been a while since this happened, had a cloud kind of settle over part of the slope and there was snow coming down to the point where i literally didn't know whether up was down or left was right and uh was a scary moment for me not being able to see anything at all and uh ironically uh, the next day we we saw a blind skier following a leader um and was thinking wow you know that can't even imagine what that must feel like not being able to see anything and going down the mountain at speeds that are that can be quite fast as as you know uh doing what you do and and too i mean it's it's incredible what you've accomplished uh in terms of your skiing career and i I did want to ask you that because you know you you competed in um giant slalom and slalom alpine races against um, some of the best ski racers um, in the world that have disabilities how how has that Um, and enduring struggles and obstacles as an amputee helped you in working with the clients that you represent in your practice?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, You know, you know, skiing is kind of like, I I mean, in in some ways you can relate it to trial is you got to be ready for anything, whether it can change at any second, you can get an obstacle come across you at any second, you have to be flexible, you have to be kind of nimble out there on the mountain and and kind of just be phlegmatic, you know, you got to just kind of take it as it comes. Um, And that's, you know, I I suppose that's helped me a little bit in in my cases. Um, Relating to my clients is, to answer your question more directly, you know, that's a, you know, I guess that's one of the the strengths I think I have as an advocate is that, um, uh, you know, I know you were involved in a really uh, horrific, you know, bicycle accident and so you've kind of have the same perspective it's a little different than mine I mean I was born without my leg my right leg so I've like had this my whole life and so I've I can kind of relate to the clients all the daily struggles that they have um, because I've lived them myself and I know the right questions to ask I know how to kind of make an argument in closing that's you know from the heart and it's genuine and by the time you know you step up for closing argument they The jury sees you kind of limping around the courtroom or the hallway for a few weeks, and they figure out you got something going on. And I think it carries a little bit, a little bit more weight. Um, I I can't relate, kind of, to the kind of like the, you know, having such a traumatic accident happening halfway through your life, kind of like you know it happened to you. But it, um, you know, it's really uh, it kind of brings back the the notion to me. Like my philosophy is that it's a, it's truly an honor and a privilege and a huge responsibility. To represent, you know, catastrophically injured folks, because, um, you know, for a lot of them, you're like their only hope, right? To to be able to kind of get back some semblance of a normal life, and to be able to get money to pay for medical expenses, you know, things that we take for granted, maybe get somebody a prosthetic limb, right, where they can kind of walk around or use their hand, things that we take for granted every day, and so. Uh, you know, as a result of of that, I you know, of having to live that experience, I really take that obligation very, very seriously, and um, you know, it just helps me kind of. My clients have a lot of confidence in me because they just know that I, I know what they're going through without me having to say it.
0: It's a great point about the opportunity and privilege. I, I bring that up to our team as well, just because, you know, we're an extension of of a lot of different trial lawyer. Uh, Firms across the country, and and that opportunity and privilege that we have to help somebody that has been through something traumatic and is now you know at the point where they're resolving their case and you know need the help fighting liens or dealing with Medicare or preserving government benefits or managing the recovery, all of that you know that that is such an important point about that, and I try to instill in my team that kind of understanding. Uh, even though they they can't necessarily be empathetic because it's, it's a little hard to be empathetic necessarily unless you've actually been through something where you you have experienced it maybe not traumatically, but you have experienced exactly the kinds of challenges and obstacles that the clients that you represent can face. So you know that that is a bit of uniqueness and and I, I share that with you in that I, I try to personalize with people on our team, what happened to me so they have a better understanding. So maybe they're, they're, they they're, may not have empathy, but they can have compassion and, and understanding of what people have gone through by the time they get to the point of resolving a personal injury case like, you know, that, that we have the opportunity and, and privilege of helping with, so.
1: Well, you know, and, and, and going back to a point you made, it's not all doom and gloom either, you know? And so one of the, one of the coolest things I ever did is I took a, a ski season off when I moved from, I moved from Florida, where I had practiced for six years doing defense work, to California in 2003, and I took off that a season to, to do ski racing against, you know, yeah, we competed against the U.S. ski, U.S. Paralympic team, the Canadian Paralympic team, the Australian team, and, um, you know, it's a variety of different disabilities, you know, there's some folks that were missing an arm, some folks missing a leg, some two legs, some spinal cord injuries, and they sit in these, you know, uh, anybody that's skied has seen these like sit skis that you sit down in and they go cr- curdling down the mountain. And these these people kind of taught me a lot, you know, I'd never skied, uh, when I was a ski racer as a kid I was skiing against able-bodied, other able-bodied, uh, able-bodied kids, not disabled kids. And when I came and decided I wanted to kind of do it a little bit in my in my mid-thirties, um, you know, these, these athletes, you know, anywhere from like 15 years old to, there were guys that were 50 year olds that were on the Paralympic team and they were skiing. And they just loved kind of getting down the mountain, and they were just reckless. Some of them, you know, and it was just really they had such a joy for life of, of and was, you know, I think they were the happiest when they're on the mountain. And so what I always tell my clients is, look, you know, something horrible's happened to you, but it's not the end, and you can live a, a really fulfilling life. You need some money to do it, though, right? I mean, you need the right equipment, you need the right prosthetics, you need the right, you know, care plan. You know, you need. You know, even if, you, even if you're a paraplegic, you can get out there and be, you know, be skiing down a mountain. And so, when I handle these cases, I don't handle them from the doom and gloom perspective, the sympathy perspective. I try to get my clients whenever I can to find the story where, you know, they're going to live their best life as long as the jury takes care of them, um, and that life can be a good one. And I don't think that that brings down the value of the cases. I think it can enhance the value of cases by, you know, letting the jury know that this money's going to be put to good use. And you know, a large verdict and a fair verdict you know, that, that provides full and fair compensation is something that's going to really make a, a, a dramatic true difference in somebody's life and make them lead a better life. I think, that, I think that's a powerful message and um, one that's maybe counterintuitive for some you know, lesser experienced trial lawyers that think you have to always kind of play the woe is me card, which is not the way that I think you know, catastrophic injury
0: cases need to be or should be tried. It's a great point, yeah. And looking back, I I believe that the being struck by a car was actually the best thing that ever happened to me. It, it gave me a new perspective. It it made me reevaluate some things in my own life that really needed to be reevaluated. So, I I do look at it that way. And so it's interesting that you 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 frame cases in that way. I. You know, I wanted to ask you, because you've got such a unique focus in part of your practice in representing amputees in both first party bad faith and third party uh, personal injury claims. And I wanted to ask you about the um, Trujillo matter, uh, which was a national ERISA class action related to insurance practices of denying uh, prosthetic devices for amputees um, and how that led you to win the 2020, um, Street Fighter of the Year award from COC a- and the the story of denials on your website really struck a chord with me because, as part of uh, what I went through after I was struck by that car, I had a bunch of dental injuries and the ERISA plan um, refused to pay for all the dental prosthetic work that had to be done because of it not being completed within one year of of the trauma, you know, and just the arbitrariness of that sort of action. Um, so this really actually struck a chord with me that, that you've taken up this cause and been so successful in helping um, you know people get what they need from those insurance carriers that should be paying for those kinds of prosthetic devices.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I've been practicing now for 25 years, but I've only been doing this coverage work, this first party coverage work for maybe the last 10 to 15 years. And it's a practice area that came to me, um, you know, from my kind of primary focus, which is representing amputees and like personal injury cases and medical malpractice. And so I started, um, you know, I'm involved in the industry, the prosthetics industry. I'm very well known in the industry. I speak at a lot of, functions, uh, you know, like the, the Academy of orthotics, Orthotist and prosthetists, they have a, a something every year. And I started kind of connecting with prosthetists, and I would hear stories from them. Prosthetists are the medical providers that, that make prosthetic limbs. And I would hear stories from them about such struggles just getting basic prosthetics for, for their patients. And so what I, I started out just doing pro bono work, and I said, okay, well, you know, if you get a denial, come talk to me. I'll try to write a letter to the insurance company, and I'll uh, try to get the prosthetic paid. And I, and I did that successfully for a while or I give advice, free advice, just to, on how to navigate the system or maybe rewrite the letter or maybe a different insurance plan to, to get. And then I started doing individual cases, non-ERISA cases, and those have been very profitable out here in in California, they're, they're very good cases. Um, And then an individual case is one where, a non-ERISA case is one where it's an individual health plan rather than a group health plan or a government plan. Um, You get a jury trial and you can get punitive damages potentially, and, and the health insurers are concerned about that. ERISA is a totally different animal, Jason, as you know. And ERISA, you know, is the Employment Retirement Income Security Act of, I think, 1974, and you know, passed to to provide some uniformity for, for big employers for their, their kind of benefit plans. Supreme Court at some point said that ERISA governs health plans. The problem with ERISA is you get no jury trial. It's a federal district court judge who's going to be the finder of fact. Um, there's no punitive damages. There's no general damages. Um, if you win, attorney's fees are discretionary rather than mandatory. And the worst-case scenario, basically, for for a health insurer when they deny a a claim, is that they have to pay the value of the claim that they denied in the first instance, and maybe they got to pay fees if they're sued, right? So, so that's one of the reasons why health insurers are so audacious in their in in some of their conduct. Just they deny and they delay at every turn. It seems like now, so because of all the challenges with ERISA, it's really hard to get lawyers to take individual cases. Um, and so I, um, you know, was turning them down or doing a one-off every once in a while or just writing the letters to try to help, and I and I decided, you know what, i got to figure out a way to do a class action. Because the one thing with ERISA is that because the law is uniform, right, you know, you have a little bit of an easier, uh, uh, you know, uh, avenue to get. Certification potentially because the law is going to be the same as to all of the the potential plaintiffs around the country, not different. And usually, these health insurers, these national insurers, are treating in the ERISA plans all of their members the same across the country. And so, this TRIO case you, you referenced was against United Healthcare, which is one of the worst offenders. And,
0: and mind, they also don't.
1: Sure. What's that? My insurer. Yeah. And, you know, I think they're the, the largest time. insurer in the country. And yeah. we, you know, I found out that what they were doing was was outrageous. Um, they were denying prosthetics to amputees, and they're saying they have a clause in their plan that says, "Well, if you, uh, you know, uh, if your doctor prescribes you a prosthetic, if there's an alternative device that would meet your functional needs, um, you get the device that meets the the minimum specifications for your for your needs. Basically, you get the cheapest." Piece of shit available is what their their official policy is, right? And so, they would send these denial letters, and they would say, uh, "Well, you know, you're, we we see you've lost your leg. Um, we see your doctor's recommended X leg. It's not the most basic leg, so deny. Try again." And they wouldn't even indicate, "Well, what's the alternative device?" They wouldn't even indicate, "Well, you know, seventy uh, percent of your prosthetic would be approved. It's just this one little you know component part that we're going to deny." And so, anyway. You know, I, I uncovered this practice, and we brought this class, and we figured out that United, the largest insurer in the country, um, had a gentleman that was basically in charge of their prosthetic policies and, and training their, the medical doctors about prosthetics that had had no, had no background training or education in prosthetics or even medicine whatsoever. He was a high school dropout, and he had gotten some certification that you can get over a weekend or something to to just sell like wheelchairs and walkers. And he was training physical medicine and rehab doctors who don't know anything about prosthetics generally. They think they do, and insurance companies will will maintain that they do, but very few actually do because they're just dealing with amputees post-trauma and prescribing things like a shrinker for the stump and then referring them out to a prosthetist that does all the work up and knows, knows about prosthetics, knows what prosthetics are most appropriate. So they never really had a qualified person looking at these claims. They they would you know they didn't tell the insureds that you know that these uh, that they could have had another device and uh, the court um, a tough judge out here in the Central District of California certified the class and then pre we you know we took this case all the way up to the week before trial we were ready to try the case which is unusual again it's a it's a federal bench trial and the judge basically reamed out the counsel for for United Healthcare and just said this is I have no idea why this case hasn't settled. Why you haven't tried to settle it? This conduct is outrageous. Um, read from some of the denial letters, and uh, and then you know basically ordered us to mediation the next week, uh, and said if we didn't settle it, he would have a federal magistrate judge do a conference. And so they united healthcare finally on the eve of trial agreed to change their policies and practices, and uh, you know it was a it, you know it affected a, a, over a thousand amputees across the country. Um, and uh, changed their their practices going forward, and reprocessed claims going back for like five or six years. It was a great victory. We were we were really really happy with it. They're just tough cases, these risky cases, and there's not a lot of attorney upside in, in it either. You know, we didn't. It wasn't a money making case for the lawyers at all. But
0: we, we thought it was an important fight to take on, and uh, we're pleased with the result. Incredible massive win for for all those people that needed what the insurance company should have already provided and uh, that practice is just disgusting and glad that you were you were willing as part of that team to take it on because that that that's part of what you know it's all about right making making a difference and that's that's an incredible difference that you've made for a lot of people well thanks I mean that's
1: what we're I think I feel like that's what we're here to do as lawyers you know take on cases that'll you know, provide impact, whether it's an individual case that you can change somebody's life with, or, you know, a case that can provide kind of systemic impact. And those are the kinds of cases that I look for.
0: So you've written an article entitled "Glimpsing the Future of an EMPT. What is that and how can it help other attorneys? Uh,
1: Yeah, that's an article I wrote for
0: trial magazine,
1: AAJ's trial magazine. I think almost 15 years ago now. It's a 2008 article, I believe. Uh, I've reread it recently because I do national talks a couple times a year on this topic. The article is still good, except the numbers are off because the numbers are like 2007 numbers or something. So a a uh, a life care plan that was for an above the knee amputee that was two or three million dollars back in at that time is now eight to ten million dollars cost of, of prosthetics has increased exponentially. I mean, it's really, really uh, yeah. extraordinarily how, uh, how much technology's advanced in the last, you know 20 years, uh, because microprocessor chips are in prosthetics now. And they um, and so you know one of the things that I think that a lot of lawyers overlook with an amputation case is the economic damages. Uh, and in any amputation case, or at least ninety-five percent of them. Probably eighty to ninety percent of the value of the life care plan is derived from prosthetics, because once an amputee loses a limb, there's not a lot of other medical medical care they necessarily require. Um, you know, orthopedic visits every once in a while, and you know maybe you need some durable medical equipment when you get older, but. I don't even like to ask for those in the, the plan—the durable medical equipment, like the walkers and the wheelchairs—because I want the jury to know that, look, w- you know, the 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 client wants and needs prosthetics, devices that'll actually let them walk upright and live as normal a life as possible. And I don't want them, the jury, thinking, well, they're going to go into a wheelchair at some point because most of them don't, and uh, you know, the prosthetics are a lot more expensive than wheelchairs. So you're gonna you're gonna undercut the value of your life care plan by art, but you know by talent and jury. Oh well, at some point he's gonna need a wheelchair, or at some point he's gonna need a walker. So I don't do that. And um, you know the article goes into depth. Some of my some of my talks go into depth. We don't have the the time in this presentation to get into it. But what I've found is that some of the best lawyers in the country, uh, because those are the kinds of lawyers that usually get these cases, leave millions of dollars on the table in the economics because they think okay. The leg amputation case, for example, that's a a really great case. It's got a ton of value, and it does, just on the non-economic damages, assuming you don't have caps. If you have caps, obviously, like in a California medical malpractice case, the the economic damages are everything. But there's a lot of different ways where you can leave a lot of money on the table representing amputees if if you don't have the right prosthetist who is going to advocate for, you know, the best prosthetics uh, available and and not have them being, you know, uh, replaced every six years or something where some, you know, the defense experts will come out and say, oh, you you know, you only need a a new prosthetic every six years. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's BS. You You know, you need a lot more often than that. So they try to cut the life care plans in half by doing things like, you know, Extending out the replacement cycle, so there's a lot of issues that go into it. Um, That the article addresses a lot of it, and and, um, uh, I have some. I think I have an hour-long talk uh, that's posted on uh, Trial Lawyers University. Anybody that has access to that platform um, can access my my speech and my, my PowerPoint.
0: Well, that's a, you know, that's a really incredible pearl of wisdom, Uh, just so I want to make sure I highlight it here. So what you're saying is, is that uh, for trial lawyers, they need to make sure that they have the right uh, experts in terms of uh, the prosthetic devices that are going to be needed in the future. So that, I don't know, do you work with specific life care planners who have more of a um, area of expertise with prosthetics, or is it the actual... Uh, prosthetics experts that have to consult with the life care planner because I think you know for trial lawyers that may watch this having a little bit of that um, that kind of advice is is incredibly value for their practices
1: yeah that's a great question Jason so the life care planner it makes no difference what life care planner you use essentially because the life care planner even if they're a physician isn't really competent to opine on what future the future prosthetics may be. They're going to need to consult a prosthetist anyway. So the, so the prosthetist's opinion is the foundation for the life care plan. The foundation's the only thing that really matters. So you can, as a, as a trial lawyer, you can choose your life care planner of choice who you think might be a good witness, relates to the jury, is good on the stand, holds up under cross. You don't need a, a, a life care planner that's kind of a specialist in prosthetics or amputation you do need a great prosthetist that understands the most current technology and that you know hasn't done a bunch of defense work where the defense bars gotten to them and trying to you know bring down the numbers by taking you know just positions that are not reasonable or you know uh, uh, kind
0: of standard practice in the industry so how do you evaluate a, a prosthetist to figure out if there's someone that you want to work with I mean I'm sure you've probably by now have a a stable of, of folks that you work with doing this type of work, but for a trial lawyer that might be listening, what, what are the key things? I mean, I know you mentioned someone that's obviously not been tainted by the other side, but how, how do you go about looking at whether that person is right for a particular case?
1: Yeah, so you want somebody that is open to, to technology. You want Uh, you you need to have a prosthetist that is going to recommend microprocessor technology for the patient um, because, number one, it's far and away the best technology. It's the safest technology for like lower limb uh, amputees, for example. Microprocessor feet and ankle provide incredible safety and stability. Uh, And so if, if you, as a trial lawyer, are talking to a prosthetist that doesn't know a lot about microprocessor technology isn't recommending it for your client or using it as practice, that's one huge red flag that they're the wrong prosthetist. The next thing that you need to look at is, well, is this a prosthetist that understands that there's no such thing as a one-size-fit-all, one-use-fit-all prosthetic, whether it's arm or leg? So every amputee needs multiple prosthetics for multiple types of activities, whether it's upper or lower. Uh, an example as a for a lower, you need a microprocessor uh, as an above knee amputee. You need a, a leg with a microprocessor knee for everyday walking around. It's not a, it's not a device for athletics. It's not a high tech device or a, a cutting edge device. They've been around for 20 over 20 years, and the, and they're used for safety and stability in everyday walking around. Now, if you're going to get that prosthetic wet, you can't get it wet, unless there's certain types of, of, there's a couple now that, that, that can be, that can be uh, are water resistant, but basically you need a water device if you've got somebody that wants to have to be safe getting into a shower, who is maybe has a pool in their backyard, has got kids running around the pool, or somebody likes to go to the beach or involved in water sports, they need something that's going to be waterproof. And then you need, some, you need another type of device if they're going to do any type of athletics. Um, and then you need a backup device for if the first one goes down, and that that athletic leg can, can act as a backup. It can, have two, it can have a dual purpose. We want to be reasonable. We don't want to gouge the you know the the other side or take an unreasonable position. You can you can combine the backup and the athletic leg as, as an example. But you need probably three devices minimum. Uh, and then same thing for the upper arm. You know you need multiple devices as well. So that's another big flag. Two other two other ones. Uh, You want to make sure that your prosthetist, in terms of the numbers, of projecting how much it's going to cost, is using the usual and customary rate. So there's three basic types of rates that prosthetists charge. Usual and customary is what everybody bills out at. You don't always get paid it, Medicare is a rate, and then there's insurance rates. So you want to make sure that the prosthetist isn't giving you Medicare rates or insurance rates, but actually usual and customary. And the standard in the industry is you bill usual and customary, and even the defense experts can't get around that. Finally, the last thing, and I alluded to it briefly, is replacement cycle. So, Jason, let me give you, let me ask, put you on the spot, give you a question, ask you a question. So, if you know the life care plan that your prosthetist, as a plaintiff expert, puts together, says, well, you need your legs replaced every three years, the defense expert says, oh no, it's not every three years. You can get a warranty, extended warranty, and uh, we don't know if that's going to be available. We don't know if it's going to cover, but we can buy this extended warranty, and it's going and it's going to last six years. What does that do to your life care plan? Drives it down. Cuts it in half. Because <laughs> if you're replacing it every three years, you go from replacing every three years to every six years, it cuts yep. it in half. Yep. So, you know, and they and the defense has come up with ways to make it sound reasonable by using the the, the uh the idea of an extended warranty that some manufacturers offer and, and you know, to say, Oh well we'll get you this extended warranty, but it cuts the life care plan in half, basically. And the problem with the extended warranties is we don't know whether they're going to exist in the future. We don't know what they're going to cover. Defense experts that opine about these these uh, warranties—they've never read them. They don't know what they cover. So anyway, there's a lot. There's a lot of cross you can do with that. Um, and I set that up in kind of this this, pre, this hour-long presentation I did at Trial Lawyers University. It's on. Uh, I know it's on their site.
0: it's kind of laughable. The the idea of the extended warranty. Just, I mean, as a consumer's experience you know of extended warranties generally they're not great and it's a fight and it's you know so i can only imagine in that world you know having someone that needs those and again it's sort of like you know the ERISA plan saying no you can't have this when you want it you know what if, what if that warranty is is not as as you said there or is not as represented so you know the idea of it being somehow a way to to really cut people's, uh, recoveries and deprive them of what should be their, their life after something like this is, has happened to them is, you know, typical, typical defense tactics. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to, to shift gears cause I, I really wanted to talk a little bit about your involvement with public justice, which is an organization I've got an incredible amount of respect and admiration for. Um, I know that you serve as a member of the board of directors, um, or, or have in the past. Can you talk about your involvement with public justice and the why behind it for you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm currently on the board, and I've been on the board for 14 years now. Um, it's an incredible organization. For anybody that doesn't know what public justice is, just real briefly, it's a it's a nonprofit public interest firm. It's based out of Washington, D.C. We, there's an Oakland office as well, and, there's a, and it's governed by a board of, of uh, lawyers, trialers from all over the country, and they do high-impact litigation in a variety of public interest areas, including civil rights, access to, to justice. Paul Bland, the executive director, is one of the, the finest, you know, advocates in the country, and he's one of the foremost experts on arbitration clauses, defeating arbitration clauses, for example. Um, They have a class action preservation project. Uh, And I got involved with public justice because of a civil rights case. So uh, back in 2007, I had been started my own firm in 2005, so I think I was in my third year of practice uh, in in my new law firm. Uh, And I was approached by public justice about this immigration detainee case. There was a gentleman by the name of Francisco Castaneda, who uh, was an undocumented alien. He was picked up for a minor drug offense, held in California State Prison for four months, then detained by uh, the United States in an immigration detention center in Southern California for another 11 months, released. and He died a year later after having his penis amputated uh, from penile cancer because, When he went into the first facility and throughout his whole 15 months being detained, he had a large, what's called a fungating lesion, which is as nasty as it sounds on the end of his penis, that desperately needed treatment, needed a biopsy. Multiple medical providers recommended that he get a biopsy, state and federal medical providers, not outside providers, not experts. Their own folks recognized he needed to be biopsied and for 15 months they didn't give him a biopsy. And all the while, the cancer grew. He started bleeding through his underwear. It was horrible until the, until the point where he was finally diagnosed. And then the minute he was diagnosed, because it got so bad, literally his penis never it nearly fell off. The federal government released him um, so they didn't because they didn't want to pay for any of the cancer treatment. Released him on uh, it was February 5th of 2007. His penis was amputated a few days later on on Valentine's Day in 2007. I was retained, and a couple months later, public justice brought me in on the case to be their lead cooperating counsel, and so I worked that case up, and public justice and I litigated that case for seven, eight years, up through, you know, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, U.S. Supreme Court, a, a, a state jury verdict, state appellate court. It was an incredible saga, but we ultimately prevailed, although we had some challenges along the way uh and uh got the the government to change their policy on providing medical care to to immigration detainees
0: yeah i had read the background on that case um before we started recording we we talked a little bit about it i it's just blows my mind Um, and i i listened to your 60 minutes interview about this case and the idea of you know being a civilized society that people in detention centers or in a, you know, jail, uh, can't be deprived of you know basic um, human rights and in, in medical care in, in that kind of way in in what you know should be a civilized society and it really was just you know, eye opening that something like that that happened and yeah I'm I'm curious for you you know because. The experience of going all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court must have been, you know, uh, as a lawyer, that that's an incredible opportunity. But in such a tough case, in terms of all the issues, like the, you know, the the Bivens stuff and and the complicated nature of the constitutional rights arguments and and what you had to do to get there. What what was it like, though, for you? going through that whole process and then also being before the US Supreme Court? Um, Well,
1: you know, I'd mentioned somebody at public justice a few minutes ago, Paul Bland, the great executive director, the current executive director, but there was another lawyer at public justice and she's still there, her name is Adele Kimmel. And she is one of the most brilliant lawyers I've ever met, you know, in my life. And she was my partner on this case. You know, we called each other co-lead uh, uh counsel. We really split up the work. You know, I did most of the trial, um it, you know, but she really she actually did witnesses at trial. She did all of the briefing, the legal briefing, um you know, creating the final work product. And so having her in public justice on the team was was just invaluable. I could have never done it without them. Um, so that was a big to answer your question. Like having a partner like that you know was huge. But when I look back on this. This was like, I guess, 15 years ago now, when I got this case. Time flies. You know, I was uh, 37, uh, 36, 37 when I got this case, um, and you know, had been practicing 10 years maybe, had never, didn't want to peel. I think, um, didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I started my firm with like. Twenty-five thousand in my name, and I settled a leg amputation case. Actually, like I think in the beginning of 2007, when I got this case. And so I think I went from making nearly you know a million dollars a year the year before to nothing, zero. Like you know after ex- after all the firm expenses, like zero in 2009 and 2010. Um, so there was tremendous pressure. Um, in this case to win this to win this Supreme Court argument. And we had some good victories in the District Court of Appeal, I'm sorry, in the District Court and then in, and in the Circuit Court of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit. Uh, but there's only one reason why the United States Supreme Court, even back then, certainly now, grants cert on a plaintiff's victory, civil rights victory in the Ninth Circuit. And that reason is not to affirm the judgment, right? So, you know, we had to convince ourselves that, you know, there were five potential votes. And we had to convince ourselves well, Kennedy is going to be the swing vote at the time um, with the court's composition. And, you know, he might go for this. But so the issue before the court to teed up just very briefly um, was whether you could sue individual federal officials under the Constitution, under Bivens. Which is the you know which is the is the judicially created cause of action under the Constitution against individual federal officials. It's sort of like the federal analog to 42 U.S.C. 1983, which applies to local state government you know local governments. So, um, you know, we had won in the, in the district court and the Circuit Court of Appeal. They said, well, yeah, you can sue federal di- doctors in their individual capacity under Bivens if the conduct is so egregious. And the and the, the district court and the Circuit Court of Appeal found this conduct egregious. Um, there was never a question that whether we could sue the United States under the Federal Tort Claims Act. But in the Federal Tort Claims Act case, you borrow the law of the state where the case is venued. And a medical malpractice case in California, this kind of case is worth nothing. It's worth $250,000, and so we knew that we had to find a, a type of theory, a legal theory that would get us around these caps. That was our problem with the the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court ultimately, in a unanimous opinion, 9-0, reversed the Ninth Circuit, saying you cannot sue federal officials in their in their official capacity or in their individual capacity for violating the Constitution. And one of the part of the reasoning is, well, you have an adequate remedy. You can sue the United States under the Federal Tort Claims Act. So they remanded the case back. So we lost that battle. We then made a really interesting argument. A deposition I took um, of a uh, of one of the folks that treated Mr. Castaneda, uh, I got him to say, "Well, you know, before he worked in this immigration facility, he worked at this federal supermax facility in Colorado where they treat the worst criminals in the world." And I got them to say, "Well, you know, you treat the worst criminals, well, yeah." I said, "Well, if this had happened in that facility, if Mr. Castaneda was a serial killer, was you know on death row." Would he have gotten this this biopsy, this treatment? He's and, and, the, and he said, "Oh, absolutely." You know, and so, and I said, "Well, why didn't he get it in this circumstance?" Well, because this policy, issued out of Washington D.C., says you don't get elective procedures, you know, and a circumcision and biopsy was elective, and that, and if it wasn't for this policy, I would have gotten this care. So then we argued, "Uh huh." The policy was created in Washington D.C. There's no caps in Washington D.C. for medical ne- negligence cases, and we argued that the law of D.C. applied because um, the law says that it's where the negligence occurred, not where the harm occurred. Is where is where you you know you can you get the choice of law. So we made a choice of law argument. We teed it up. We had a good district court judge uh, that we think was going to grant our motion to to find that D.C. law was apl- uh, applied. We had me- we mediated the case a week before, and the United States ended up paying us two million dollars—one point nine five, uh, $1,950,000, hundred uh, fifty thousand—which is almost eight times the cap because they were concerned about this other argument we were going to make. And then we had a- and then we had other claims against the uh, state officials because they also didn't provide him, uh, Mr. Castaneda, care when he was in state custody before he was detained by the United States. That case went to jury verdict. Uh, and the jury gave us every penny that I asked for in my closing. It was reversed on appeal. The uh, second district here in California found that there was immunity to these officials. Then we had still left over pending that was stayed in the federal case, these 1983 claims against the same state actors in their individual capacity. We we're going to go to trial on that and then the state came and they ended up paying us another 1.25 million. So we ended up getting 3.2 million for the family. The damages challenge we had was that we had one survivor, a daughter who had really had no relationship with the deceit throughout her whole life. Um, and you know he kind of left, the, You know he was never married to her mother and he left early in, in, in her life, like before she was one, years, one year old, never spent any Christmases or birthdays with her at any time. And he just sort of got to know her after he was released from prison and after he had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. So you know, given those facts, the recovery, you know, was, uh, was exceptional. He was, a, he was a gang member, you know, he was a convicted felon, he was undocumented. So it was, uh, it was challenging, but uh, ultimately after the, after the settlement and the Supreme Court argument, the United States changed its policy. Um, and uh, no longer has that, that policy that prevented the
0: care from being provided to, to Mr. Castaneda. A great example of, of how trial lawyers can help improve society overall is, I mean, you've got a couple of examples of cases like that, which is truly impressive. I, we've sort of touched on this, but I, I did want to ask you this, because I typically ask um, guests on the podcast about this when you've got a catastrophic or serious injury case, what are top two or three things that you do to try and empathize with that client to tell their story to the jury, um, you know, focusing on what they're left with after being injured um, by a third party? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. Um, we, t- we touched a little bit on it. You know, I mean, my background kind of gives me some credibility with the clients. Um, You know as does yours for example and it you know and it and i know i kind of naturally empathize with them and i can lead them through sort of discovering the story of their case um you know i i I have my own style and i kind of borrow from a lot of different uh tried great trial lawyers that have been successful um i have been to jerry spence's trial lawyers college out in wyoming um as an example um i do a lot of stuff with uh Dan Ambrose at Trilor's University, also a great source, you know, in his his Trojan Horse program as well. So I've sort of done all that kind of stuff. And so I'm pretty good about some of those things are designed to be able to sit down with the client and and kind of mirror them and to get into their stories and figure out really what it is, what's the story in the case that is going to resonate. Um, But I think that focusing just on the client is not necessarily the right approach. So what I do... In every serious case now is I spend I do a settlement documentary uh, not a life day in life that's different a settlement documentary I tell the story of the case and I one case comes to mind it was a brain injury case by a, a gentleman who's become a good friend of mine he's now my personal trainer comes over to my house a couple days a week and trains trains me he was involved in a horrible uh, motorcycle crash and he um, worked as a IT professional at a a nonprofit public interest law firm in, in LA called Public Counsel totally unrelated to public justice but the, Public Counsel a great firm they do great work here in LA and when I got the case it was referred to me he had gone back to work after his accident he'd recovered supposedly and he got a great performance review and I thought this is strange because he had a real serious brain injury so I hired a camera crew with people I've worked with here I have people that I work with here in LA that I do these settlement documentaries kind of in-house it's probably the best place in the world to do this kind of stuff because there's tons of, you know, entertainment professionals that, that will help. And so I got his camera crew. And we, we we camped out at this law firm for probably three straight days. And I just had every single one of his coworkers come through, sit down in a chair across from me for maybe 10, 15 minutes each, um, and talk about Manny, uh, the client, about what he was like, how he was different. And then I talked to his his boss, who wrote this really nice performance review. And I found that the story was actually, in it was both sad, but also an incredibly impressive sort of story that we put together about how this event totally changed him. And that he was completely incapable of doing the job that he had been doing. That they were just kind of, because they're really a great organization, frankly, brought him back to try to support him. That other people were doing his work, that he would constantly forget the stuff that he was doing. Um, And we got all these folks to talk about his change in personality. And so we kind of weaved together this story through maybe 10 10 independent witnesses, you know, who were his co workers, not necessarily close friends of his. But so that's what I'd like to do. I mean, I like to. talk to as many people other than the plaintiff as possible to get to the story. Because sometimes, especially with a brain-injured plaintiff, it's hard to sometimes get there to get that story. It's also sometimes hard to get them to, with brain injury or not, to open up about some of these things, you know? And of course, I'm kind of good at it in terms of just like... Being relate being able to relate to my own circumstance when I'm talking to somebody because I've you know I know where some of the dark spots are that people have and their their insecurities and their fears and their struggles. And so I'll you know I'll know where to go kind of when I'm working with them individually. But I think the bigger story is not so much working with the plaintiff and themselves. it's the it's everybody else in their life because I don't care what defense expert the the other side hires. If you have eight to 10 people who are emotionally congruent that get up there and are telling the truth about this person, and you can see it in their eyes, you can see it, they're telling the truth, they're just being honest, they're saying, look, no, he's not what he was, I don't care what, you know, neuropsych expert or or whoever, you know, gets up there and says, well, he's, his functioning is just, you know, slightly below, normal. he's not so bad, he's going to recover, they're not going to, the jury's not going to believe him.
0: So, you know, you, you've built an incredibly uh, successful law practice. Is there one tip or something that you would share with other trial lawyers that's part of been the secret to your success in building your practice?
1: I mean, this is sort of trite and sort of simple, but I, I, it's just, it's true. I, I mean, you have, to, you have to put the clients first. You have to focus on doing great work, um, always putting the clients first, always, you know, making decisions that are in the client's best interest, Um, charging fair fees, not gouging the clients on costs, um, being reasonable. um, And if you do that, you're going to have great success. You're going to get good verdicts over time. The word is going to spread. I don't think there's any quick fix to it. I really don't. I don't think there's any silver bullet. Um, I mean, I know there's folks that come into town and they throw just tons of money at advertising and they can get cases and refer them out. I don't consider that to be the kind of law that I want to practice. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm viewing being a lawyer and building a firm from the standpoint of being a true professional, handling the cases yourself, trying the cases yourself, building your practice, there's other folks that can speak to the advertising way of building a practice differently and I have some good friends that do that do it very well and they're good lawyers and they have nice practices but that's not the way I have built my practice it's kind of like one case at a time and just do a great job and um, you know it helps to be obviously active in your in local organizations to speak to write articles I mean I got that Castaneda case as an example I got that case because a friend of mine who was an editor of California Forum Magazine, which is the state TLA magazine, was doing a governmental liability article. And she, call, she called me and said, hey, I know you used to do defense work, governmental defense work. So before I came out to California, I was a uh, worked at a, a large law firm in Tampa and I represented governmental entities, sheriff's uh, offices all over Florida doing, uh, defending the cops and defending and doing jail cases, jail medical neglect cases. And so she asked me to write this article I remember writing the article. Literally, it was New Year's Eve. I was living in San Francisco at the time. I could hear people partying outside. I was going skiing the next day. So I did, so the reason why I was working on it was New Year's Eve. I had a ski trip planned. I couldn't, you know, I had to do it New Year's Eve. Otherwise, it wouldn't get done. I stayed in, didn't go out, didn't celebrate with anybody, and just wrote this article. It was published. Somebody read it at Public Justice and called me. That's how I got that case. So you know, I think that just doing that kind of stuff is um, still works. Um, I'm not an expert at the social media. I'm not an expert on the, on the online. I I don't know
0: how people do that. That's for somebody else, but I just kind of do it the old fashioned way. So given your areas of specialty that we've talked about, do you wind up co-counseling a lot of cases? And I'm just thinking for any lawyers out there who are listening to this podcast, if they have cases that perhaps are in your, your sphere of expertise, um, you know, do you do you work with other lawyers quite frequently um, in a co-counsel relationship or referral relationships?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, because of the nature of how I market my practice, that's, you know, the majority of the cases I get are referred. You know, I don't get them because I have ads out, and, you know, the yellow pages are online. So it's mostly word of mouth. The lawyer's coming to me and, uh, and you know, I, you know, probably, I mean, well over half of my cases are, are referral based or co-counsel based
0: uh just a couple more questions for you and we'll wrap up the, this one is is a bit self-serving i do ask it every time though so when you're resolving cases um, today what are the most frustrating or difficult issues that relate to settling a case that you face today is it dealing with medicare MediCal? Leans, um, you know what? What is it that's become a difficult part of your practice in terms of settlement?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, it's it's the liens It really is, Jason. I mean, you know, it's it, that's the thing that holds everything up, and it's and it's the the challenging thing that that um, makes it hard to even tell the client sometimes. Well, you know, what's my net going to be? Because if you're going to settle a case, the client almost wants to know what are you what are you going to net. And you never really know, right? I mean, you know, you have some idea. You can give them some ballparks, but unless you've negotiated the liens in advance, which is difficult to do without a settlement, um, you kind of don't know. So, uh, you know, we, we send cases to you guys. Um, we try to do some smaller ones ourselves because we because we know we don't want to we don't want to bother you with the small stuff. Although I know you you're happy to do it, but like you know, we. We, I, I sometimes take a lot of attorney time doing these little just to save the client a thousand bucks, and we'll negotiate a lien for you know months and months. So, um, uh, you know, I know that uh, uh, some of the best decisions I've ever made is sending cases over to you guys to get to get
0: resolved because you do a great job and you also save us a ton of time. I mean, yeah, for most law firms, it really is about the the time and and, but also the end result for the client you know that that is you know one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that because you know a lot of our people have come from the other side they understand you know what needs to be done in order to get the best possible result and you know that's that's ultimately to benefit the client and so for for many law firms not spending the time and resources to do it but then also getting a much better end result for the client or two reasons that you know we we have many law firms that work with us uh when it comes to lien resolution so i appreciate hearing that because it's always it's always good to get that kind of feedback from the market all right so uh last question and i'll let you get back to your practice and this is open-ended you can answer it however you want uh since the the podcast is called trial review what is your view as a trial lawyer well, I, I view being a trial
1: lawyer as as a as a profession, right? you know, not a business first and foremost. And I believe, as a result, um, you know, we shouldn't be making decisions that are based on business or ego. We should be making client centered, client focused decisions. So what I think people sometimes forget, and I hear people, and I think they're just doing this out of bravado, but they say, "Oh, it's my case," or all right, you know I'm gonna, you know they give advice. Well, just try your good cases and 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 you know and try more of your good cases and look, you know. I try the cases, I try my shitty cases, my good cases. They get, we get paid on those. They settle them. Good defense lawyers see that and they they tend to pay those. It's usually the cases that are challenging where there's low offers that you that you try, and sometimes it's in your client's best interest to try case that you don't want to try and it's sometimes in their best interest to settle the case that you want to, that you want to try right and so I think that the foundation of being a trial lawyer is putting your client first trying to figure out what's in your clients best interests and un- I mean usually that means settling the cases you want to try and, and trying the cases you, you want to settle um, and that's kind of how I look at it is
0: uh, it's a profession and it should be a client centric client focused profession well, share that sentiment exactly, and I, I tell our team that, you know, it's it's all about getting the best possible result and improving that person's life, that, that opportunity. That's something I reinforce constantly with our team. And it's pretty incredible to see, you know, on teams with our entire team, you know, when Aline gets wiped out, the kind of celebration and everybody high-fiving that, that's, that's you know, that's a great thing for that client, you know. It's it's kind of cool to see that in action and you get to see that um too all right so um and i want to make sure i give you an opportunity to tell people that may be watching this who might want to get in touch with you how's the best way to to reach you uh if they have questions about anything we've talked about today yeah i mean conaldoyellaw.com is all my contact information
1: um you can go there my email is simple conaldoyellaw.com and then the all the information on the uh, the website will give you the phone numbers and you know but you feel free to email me directly or call call and talk to myself or Eloise my lead paralegal or Steve uh, my lead associate.
0: Well we'll include Connell's contact information uh, and more on the web page for this particular podcast so you'll find the information there and I want to thank everybody for Tuning in to this episode of Trial Law Review and a special thank you to Connell for joining me today. Thanks so much, Jason. It was a real pleasure. And we'll see everybody on the next episode of Trial Law Review. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com, and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.